All right, welcome, and thank you for uh, listening to another Courageous Warrior Ministries podcast. I'm your vice president of Courageous Warrior Ministries, Joshua Schwarzot. Uh, for anybody who's been listening to our podcasts, you're going to notice that uh, we're taking a slightly different tone on this one. Usually it's uh, me and at least one or two other people, and we're having a nice, friendly banter back and forth, uh, giving our opinions. Uh, but today we're just gonna we're gonna do uh, something different. We're taking a break in our lust series, and I'm gonna do something that I've been feeling that God's really been leading me to do. Uh, there was a specific message I felt that He want given, and uh, because of that, I'm gonna go ahead and do this episode solo. So, if you were hoping to hear a conversation between me and a couple of other other guys, I'm sorry. It's just gonna be me today, and I hope to make this as painless as pro- uh, as possible for you. Uh, and, you know, I realize I'm not the most well-spoken person, but I'm going to give it the uh, old college try. Uh, so for everybody uh, that's going to be listening to this, I really wanted to take the opportunity for you guys to get to know me. I, Since I'm involved with every podcast and you're listening in, I've, I've thought that was a very good thing to do. So that way, when we're talking about things, you have a better understanding of where I'm coming from on this. So... Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to share my testimony with you guys. Uh, I'm going to show you where God has brought me from. You know, it could take five minutes. It might be 30 minutes, but I'm just going to roll with it. So uh, I'm just going to start with a quick summary of how I grew up. You know, I grew up in the church. Uh, from the time I can remember, I, I was in church every time the doors were open. Uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night service, Wednesdays. The doors were open. My mom made sure that I was there. You know, at six, my parents, my mom and dad, they, they split. Uh, at 10, my mom married a man who, uh, I'll just say, didn't leave the, be the best Christ-like example. And then at 13, you know, I should go back there. I, at about 10 years old, I also accepted Christ in my life for the first time. But, you know, as a young kid, it, kind of ignorant in life, you know, so I thought everything from there was going to be easy. And then at 13, that's when I first felt God leading me into the ministry. It was a calling that I kind of expected, I kind of felt was coming. And then it came, scared the daylights out of me, so I just started running. It was something I wanted no part of as a teenager. So from there, I, I did anything really you'd expect a teenager to do. You know, I, I became sexually active at 16. You know, I went to parties, I drank, didn't really, I smoked pot occasionally, not a lot, but, you know, I did smoke, I did partake. And then, through the calling that was placed on me, and expectations within education, because my mom knew I was a smart kid, I didn't know how to handle these expectations as a kid, so it's at 17 years old, I left school, I quit school, and I ended up just going to get my GED. So that was that was my childhood in a nutshell right there. I you know, it's a good thing though that even when we do stupid things, God's still there for us. You know, he places people in our lives that he knows are gonna be big influences in us. So uh there I am, out of school, done with school, nineteen years old, and I go to what was called Cornerstone Music Festival. Has all the it it was a great music festival, it had all the best Christian metal bands, Christian hardcore bands, Christian punk bands. Oh, holy smokes, it was fun. It was a great time. But the best part about this at in two thousand one, at this music festival, I ended up meeting the woman who'd become my wife. So, you know, thankfully 
she was a strong Christian because I definitely wasn't. You know, being raised in the church, I could fake being a Christian pretty well around her and her family. You know, when we were 22, we got married. And about eight weeks after our wedding, we found out we were six weeks pregnant. So here you got a young married couple, doesn't even really understand what it means to be married, and all of a sudden we're already expecting a child. So, you know, both of us were working jobs that supported us. You know, we were able to pay our mortgage on time, our car payments. But when you throw a child into the mix, we both knew that these jobs that we were working was not going to support a family. So at this point, we're looking at it's 2005. So what did I do? I did anything that any reasonable man would do. I enlisted in the Army as an infantryman. Yeah, middle of a war. I don't know what I'm thinking. Uh, so that August, on August 31st, I actually left for Fort Benning to uh, start my basic training in AIT. Uh, and it, if you're an infantryman, you do it all right there at Benning, just straight through. So I'm going to go ahead now, and I'm going to fast forward and start getting into the juicy stuff, I guess. Uh, after I graduated uh, my basic, my first duty station was Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. Not as romantic as it sounds, Hawaii is not fun when you're in the military. Uh, shortly after I arrived, uh, let's see, I got there in February of 2006. In April of 2006, my wife and my son, who was just born uh, in February, arrived to join me. Uh, we didn't get to spend too much time together in Hawaii because as soon as I got, into, got to Hawaii, I was placed with uh, the 2nd Battalion of the 27th Infantry Regiment. They were already on orders to leave that following October for Iraq. So they were already in the deployment cycle. They're getting trained up, getting ready to go. Uh, we have an NTC rotation at Fort Irwin scheduled. Uh, so two weeks after my wife got to Hawaii, we're on a plane. We're flying to California, uh, me and my fellow soldiers, to do some training at Fort Irwin. So, as you can imagine, the stress that was there, a young married couple with a newborn, never saw each other. You know, it was a pretty, pretty strenuous time, but we were getting by. And also, we ended up deploying in August instead of October. So, August 2006, time to leave for, to Iraq for a year. My first deployment, uh, we were in a small fob called Fob McHenry. Uh, it was right between two cities, Huija and Riyadh, Iraq. And after being deployed for three weeks, I called home, and guess what? Found out my wife was six, was six weeks along, and uh, not only was she six weeks along um, being pregnant, but, yeah, it was twins. So uh, I'm just going to go on a quick tangent right here. You know, I love all three of my kids. Love them dearly. They're some of the best things that ever happened to me. But at that point in my life, when I found out that we were going to be having twins, well, my first reaction was I thought my wife was pulling a joke on me. You know, here I am deployed. I thought she was trying to lighten the mood. And I did not believe her until she actually mailed ultrasound pictures to me. And I saw the ultrasound pictures for myself. So, here I am. I was barely functioning as a father of one. Now I'm going to have three kids. They were born in April of uh, 2007. And lucky, luckily, I was on my mid-tour leave, so I was able to be there for the births. Uh, but let me go ahead and get back on track here real quick. So here I am deployed, and it really took until December 5th, from August, uh, middle of August until December 5th, really, for everything to become real to me. Uh, we were doing a routine uh, patrol when there was a uh, IED uh, made up of a couple of 155-millimeter artillery rounds that went off. 
Luckily for us, it went off between uh, my Humvee, which was the lead Humvee, and the Humvee that was behind me. So there was no casualties, no injuries. You know, so we stopped to do our battle damage assessment. You know, we're joking, smoking, everything you'd imagine that soldiers would be doing in that environment. And at that point, there was a call that came over the radio that I'll never forget. Uh, One of my company's other patrols, they were doing a patrol about 15 miles to the north of us. And one of their Humvees uh, was hit with a catastrophic IED. Uh, We lost five awesome, awesome people that day. You know, and even though I knew these guys and I knew what had happened, you know, that still did not do anything to budge my relationship with God. I, I still chose to, to remain on the outside and not looking to him. So here I am in Iraq. The ID happens. I finally woke up with that to the danger that was around me. You know, it's not that I was ignorant of it before, you know, and I didn't know that there was the danger there. You know, because we had gotten shot at a couple times, you know, but we hadn't been in any extended fire fight, firefights at that point yet. You know, it was just all sporadic uh, sniper fire, small IEDs that managed to go off and miss our trucks or not do any damage to our trucks. But up to that point, though, anybody in my battalion that did become a casualty, I didn't know them, so it really didn't affect me to that point. You know, and it's not that I didn't care, it's just I didn't know them. But beginning with that IED attack, you know, I actually had a relationship with these guys. So, you know, it was a little bit hard and it woke me up to, to the danger that was in Iraq. And overall, you know, that, that, that started on December 5th, you know, and December was a really hard month for my battalion. You know, we dealt with more casualties that month. Uh, we dealt with an insider attack by an Iraqi soldier who was part of an Iraqi uh, army company that was on our base. So that put even more stress on us because this happened, the insider attack happened just before Christmas. So that just made Christmas not feel like Christmas. You know, even by the standards that we had deployed for Christmas, it just was worse than what you would even think about then. But, you know, being being the soldiers we were, we made it a point to say starting with the new year, we're going to make the deployment better somehow. You know, it'll be about the halfway point, new year, new start. We're going to go ahead, kick butt, take names, and rock on. That mentality lasted until January 10th of 2007. Yeah, with our morale already low, it, you know, already busted up a little bit. All of a sudden, we turn on the TV, and there is President Bush announcing that there is going to be a surge of 20,000 troops coming to Iraq. And everybody presently in, co- in country, their deployments are going to be extended by three months. So instead of coming home in July to complete the year, we were now going to be in Iraq until October. As you could imagine, that really didn't do anything for us. You know, here we are already down. All of a sudden, we're going to be staying longer. It, it, it really killed any morale we had. You know, and you'd think through all of that that I'd at least, you know, turn to God and at least pray to him a little bit, but it just wasn't getting through my head. So now here we are stuck in Iraq. It's October of 2007. Instead of coming home in July, like we're supposed to be. And it's the same routine, monotonous pattern every day, pretty much between January and August. Go out on patrol, 
get shot at, occasionally get in a fight, take the occasional IED, eat and sleep. It's the same repeated pattern. Morale would occasionally lift up, but we were still stuck in Iraq. And due to the insider attack in December, not trusting the very people who were supposed to fight beside us and eventually take over security of their country, we, we just, we could not get our morale lifted at all. You know, so as you remember, I just said, you know, between October and August, you know, it was the same anonymous pattern. But so then here comes August 23rd of 2007. This is what I call my alive day. You know, here we are, finally August, only a few months from going home. You know, we've already begun our inventories, going through our connexes to make sure we got all of our stuff that we're supposed to be taking back to the, to the States with us. I'll never forget August 23rd, 2007. We're on a routine patrol south of Riyadh, Iraq, crossing over a culvert. I don't remember much of it as it happened. I remember driving along. We're on four wheels. And then I remember coming to and we're upside down. My initial thought, you know, was our gunner, there's no way he could have survived this. He's crushed by our Humvee. You know, but there's so much dust and smoke from the explosion. I, I, I couldn't see anything, you know, so I'm already starting to, you know, adrenaline's kicking in. I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing here. You know, first time really experiencing this, it was, it was a whole new thing for me. So I, I, here I am upside down, struggled a little bit getting my door open, but I finally started getting my senses around me enough to get my door open. I climbed out and I was stumbling back towards where the rest of our convoy would be. And I just remember one of my NCOs come up and he, he grabbed me by my, my vest my, and started dragging me back towards his Humvee. I remember this vividly. He threw me down in his seat in this Humvee and then he just went taking off back to look for the uh, other three guys that were in my truck with me. And I remember sitting in that Humvee and my buddy Ray, he was, he was the one that was gunning. He looks down and just like this gets just this ghost white face and he's just holy crap how did you survive this it wasn't those exact words it was a lot more colorful language in there but he thought there's no way that anybody could survive this that's how big this explosion was so you know you look at this you know how bad this explosion was you know he's expecting and everybody in my platoon is expecting four dead bodies to be picked up but here I am pulled out and, you know, but the great thing about this is in this instance, that's not where this miracle stops. The truck commander, the guy who's in the, uh, I was driving, the truck commander, he sits in the front seat beside the driver. Me and him both, we got out of this with, you know, just some scratches, some bruises, some scrapes. Our gunner, he got ejected from the Humvee from the force of the explosion. It ejected him probably about 20 yards from the, from the truck. So instead of the truck flipping on top of him, he was clear of the truck when it flipped. And he ended up walking away with, with a busted shoulder and a busted wrist and a busted arm. And now here's the real miracle. Uh, my buddy Aaron, he usually sits on the side of the Humvee that was behind the truck commander. To this day, you know, we don't know what it was that morning that made him decide that he was going to sit on my side of the truck. This IED goes off. It completely destroyed where he would have been sitting. There was no seat left from where he usually sat. It blew him through an armored door from 
1151 Humvee. So anybody who's familiar with the armor on an 1151, that's where we were driving, and that's what he got blown through. He got evac'd. He died once while he was being evac'd in Blod, to Blod. They revived him there. He got evac'd to Germany. He died once and route to Germany. But he's still with us today. He ended up having his, uh, to lose a leg from, the, from injuries, but he's still alive. And that's where the miracle is. There, there's a truck where four people should be dead, but the fact is we are all alive today thanks to the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I, I can't say how big of a miracle this was. You know, I'm going to have uh, a picture posted on our Facebook page when we release this podcast just so you can see this truck and how destroyed it was because I cannot tell you how bad it was. Words will not do it justice. And let me tell you something with this. The EOD techs, they did their thing. They did their, uh, their assessment. And according to their estimations, there's 500 pounds of homemade explosive plus three 155-millimeter artillery rounds stuffed inside this culvert when it blew up. There is no other way except for, the, except for our God that we are still alive today. So here is that going on, and you, you think that that would wake me up, but you know what? No, it didn't. You know, it, it got me to start talking. You know, I figured God just saved my life. The least I can do is at least talk to him once in a while. You know, but you think that something like that would cause you to surrender, but no, no, it didn't. I was still too stubborn. I, was, I, I just couldn't. But I did start to pray occasionally, you know, and it was a start. And as you can imagine, the rest of our deployment between August 23rd, 2007 and October of 2007 when we got home, it was a pretty slow deployment compared to that, compared to that day. But when I got home in October, I was ready to be home. So I arrived back in Hawaii my, you know, with my wife. You know, we're enjoying what's called the honeymoon period. Anybody who's married can tell you about the honeymoon period. It doesn't take somebody to be deployed to tell you about the honeymoon period. Everything's perfect. Nothing can go wrong. You're just in, in marital bliss. But here's the thing uh, about the honeymoon period. After a while, real life starts to creep back in. Our decisions start creeping back in. I had three kids that I had no idea how to be a father to. I had a wife I didn't respect like I should. You know, I didn't take my wife and kids to church and get in the Bible like I should. And I started to watch pornography on a regular basis like I shouldn't. And let me tell you, you know, all this, it led to a struggle. You know, my marriage was horrible. Me and my wife would fight over every little thing. You know, we weren't struggling financially, but you bring up money and all of a sudden it was this huge fight. You know, and then when I found out in May of 2008 that in October of 2008, we were heading back for another 12-month deployment to Iraq, my marriage was so horrible at that point that I was thrilled to be going back on another deployment. I could not wait for October to get there. And, you know, before I go forward too much, I got to, you know, I'm going to just tell you, remember how I just started that I started watching pornography every day? Because we're going to see how this one sin cascaded. So mid-October, I deployed back to Iraq. You know, but by this time, Iraq was a whole new place. The surge brought violence down. The Iraqi army was actually doing more and more of what they were supposed to to take over security of their country. So while we patrolled every day, the patrols were usually short, and it led to a lot of downtime. So when you're bored and you have nothing to do and you aren't right with God, what do you do? 
Well, my one sin, my one addiction of, you know, of being caught in pornography, it, it escalated. It turned into something that I said I would never do, never be, and that is a cheater. I am an adulterer. I didn't do anything physically with anybody else, but I started talking to a girl online from back home. Emotionally, mentally, I was gone from my wife when I was with her. And you might say, well, you know, that's no big deal. You know, you didn't do anything physical. But I'm going to shoot that. Let me tell you about Matthew 5, 28. Whoever looks on a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. So me not doing anything physically with this woman, it had no bearing on my sin. It was the same thing as if I had done something physical. Guys, I am an adulterer. And I really, really, really want you guys to understand that. So I want to, you know, bring this home real quick, this part home. The deployment lasted from October 2008 until September of 2009. During this deployment, I enlisted for another five years with the option to go to Fort Drum, New York. When I got home in September, my wife, of course, found out what I was doing. So we fought. She cried. And she was doing, she was planning on doing what I deserved, which was leaving my sorry butt. But remember, at the beginning of this talk, I said that she was a strong Christian woman. Thank God she was, and she still was at this point, because God told her directly that she was not going to leave me, that he was not done with our marriage. So, and she was not to divorce me. He said that our marriage wasn't lost. And thankfully, my wife was able to listen to God because I was nowhere near listening to him. And it was at this point that things really started to turn for me. I saw my wife who was listening to our glorious God. She was being the witness that I was supposed to be. She was being the leader in my family that I was supposed to be. How could this woman who I did not deserve, who I hurt, how could she stay? So that got me talking to God even more than I was. So now comes along to January of 2010. Time for me to move to Fort Drum, New York in the middle of January. Let me say that again. I moved to Fort Drum, New York in the middle of January. And if any of you guys know anything about that part of the country and especially that part of the state of New York, we're going from Hawaii, tropical paradise, to about five feet of snow. And here I am, you know, I'm still regularly talking with God, but I'm still not ready to surrender and accept him as my savior. But I started going to church at this point. I started taking my family to church at this point. And it just so happened that the pastor of the church that I went to when I, we were living in Ada, Oklahoma, uh, the Ada First Church of the Nazarene, the, 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 the pastor that was at that church when we uh, first left for the military, he had become a chaplain and just so happened to be stationed at Fort Drum, New York. So he recommended a church, and we started going to that church. And at this point at this church, is, you know, my wife met a, a woman who used to become one of her best friends. You know, one of her, essentially, she calls her soul sister. And, and it's amazing that God would have, you know, out of all the places to go, I chose Fort Drum. And it, it just shows like what God's plan is because we get there 
my wife meets this other woman who happens to be going through the same exact thing that my wife is. And guess what? God gave this woman the same exact directions that he gave my wife. So that gave my wife somebody to lean on, you know, when she needed it, when she was struggling, when she didn't understand why she was supposed to be doing what, you know, she was doing. So here we are now. I'm just going to jump forward to the summer of 2010. I was in the 2nd Battalion of the 87th Infantry Regiment at Fort Durham. At that time, I was in 3rd Brigade. Uh, we found out we are going to be headed to Afghanistan in April of 2011 for a year. Which, you know, by this point, my wife, she's a seasoned Army wife. She took that in stride. You know, it's a deployment. Kind of expected. Up to this point, we've been working on our marriage. Things are still tough. And they continue to be. For the most part, I was doing what I, what I was supposed to be doing, but there was still something missing. And it stayed missing until October of 2010. You know, I can't remember the exact day. There's a lot of people you ask them, hey, what day did you become saved? They'll be able to tell you, oh, it was July 3rd, 2003. I can't remember the exact day, but I can tell you the exact location of what I was doing. I'd just gotten back from the field. We were out doing some training exercises. And it was in October of 2010. I'm sitting there soaking in the tub because we just gotten back. And I'm talking to God, you know. It was just a deep conversation. You know, I, I don't believe prayer is, you know, this old, what you really see in church. I believe prayer, it's just like if you're talking to somebody on the street, you know. So here I am. I was just in a deep conversation with God, you know, a deep prayer. And while I'm sitting in this bathtub in Watertown, New York, is where I finally broke. You know, it, it's where I received the incredible gift of salvation. You know, and before I go any further, I want everyone to understand one thing. Even with all the work prior to this that I was put into my marriage, you know, after basically leaving my wife, all the love I showed her and all the taking her to church and praying, you know, it could only have a minimal effect. You know, it could only help minimally. It wasn't until I asked Jesus to forgive me, to save me, that any of that could really matter. Because it does not matter, you know, if you're doing all the right things. If you're going to church, if you're praying, if you're reading your Bible, if you have never once accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all you're doing is putting on a show. So until I asked Jesus to forgive me and save me, none of that mattered. And why? It's because of my heart. My heart wasn't right. It may have been right when it came to intentions, but it wasn't right with God. And let me tell you guys, God is what, our heart, that's what God looks at. He doesn't look at our actions, he looks at our heart. He could not get into my marriage until he got into my life. Until he was number one in my life, there's no way I could let him be number one in my marriage. It's not to say that, you know, once I asked him in my life, though, that, you know, suddenly everything was fantastic. You know, no, there's still going to be problems. You know, there's still going to be things we got to work through. But the things that would cause a fight before, they weren't there. You know, the talk about money, we could talk about money and just have a a casual conversation. We could talk about life decisions, have a casual, casual conversation, me and my wife. It wasn't an argument because why? Because we decided to put God first. But even though, I'm, I'm going to mention something, even though I'm at this point in my life where I finally accepted Christ, you know, let me tell you something. When God calls you, that calling doesn't go away. So even though he called me back when I was 13, and 2010 when I 
came around and actually, you know, at 28 years old, it didn't mean that calling was gone. But I still didn't want to fully surrender. So, you know, let me bring you to April of 2011. Left for Afghanistan. And let me tell you, Afghanistan was probably the best, worst deployment I've ever had in my life. I know that that doesn't make sense, but it was probably the best thing that happened to me. But for the the worst of reasons, though. You know, so we got into Afghanistan in April 2011. I was with Charlie Company 287 at that time, and we're only there for a couple weeks, and I get placed on my battalion commander's personal security attachment. You see, just before we had left for country... I had some schooling that made me a battalion asset. So they wanted me kept that battalion. So they put me on my battalion commander's personal security detachment. Yeah, it helped my wife deal with the fact that I was deployed. You know, she thought I would be safer. I didn't tell her that my battalion commander was a former, was a ranger who would not just sit idly by on base while his men were out, you know, doing patrols. But daily we were out on patrols with our fellow companies within the battalion, you know, and I got to brag on my battalion commander because, you know, when we were out of these patrols, he wouldn't take over. He'd let the lieutenant that was leading the platoon patrol or the, uh, if it was a company patrol, he'd let that company commander do their thing. You know, he essentially just said, we're another platoon. Use us as such. You know, anyway, in Afghanistan, you know, here I am, I'm a new Christian, so my faith did struggle. There was times where I did mess up. You know, there's times I'd slipped up and I would still watch pornography. But, you know, it's like I said earlier, this was the, the worst deployment that I ever went on. You know, I lost more friends and people I called brother this deployment than my previous two combined. But none of them hit me like a certain one. And that was on September 8th, 2011. I'm not going to put the the, the person's name out there, but I'm going to go ahead and tell the story. We were on a battalion mission. We were with our battalion commander overwatching. We were on a Iraqi army uh, outpost. We were overwatching a village as one of our uh, companies made entrance into this village. Uh, the company that was the, the lead company on this mission was my old company, Charlie Company 287. And it was my, the, the lead platoon was my former platoon. So here we are. I am part of the Overwatch with the personal security detachment uh, as they're about to, to breach into this village. Uh, we have these things. They're called APOBs, and they're used to, to clear approaches. They have kind of like a... They, they, they launch out a, essentially a string of explosives that'll go off and uh, it's supposed to clear any potential ID that's in that line of advance. So we use the APOBs, but what we couldn't see is on the very end of the line, it got hung up. So it wasn't on the ground level. So when it exploded, it did not clear the ID that was by the wall that we were getting ready to breach. So my old platoon starts making the advance and as they start going through the wall, uh, you just you hear and you see the explosion. You don't know what's going on because we were about 500 meters away watching them advance. 
but the kid that was killed, there, there's two casualties, but there, there's one that specifically, you know, they were, they were both killed immediately, but uh, the one that hit me hard for a few reasons, you know, first the, the, the kid, he was, he was one of my soldiers that I helped bring up, you know, I, I trained him, he was part, I didn't, Sorry, guys, just to, I helped train this kid, and uh, he was a great, fantastic kid, you know, he had only been home from his mid-tour leave for a couple days before this happened, you know, when he was home on his leave, he had just asked his girlfriend to marry him, she said yes, you know, there's this kid with this fantastic future in front of him. And I, I don't know why, but <laughs> he, he ended up getting killed that day. And it, it, it completely broke me because, you know, there's this kid that has this great future. You know, he was a kid that I helped bring up and train. And when we ended up getting back to base that, that evening, you know, I just, I, I found a space, you know, where I was just by myself and. You know, I just completely broke. You know, I I completely broke down. I was crying. And I talked to God for, you know, it had to have at least been two hours. You know, I, I can't tell you how long it was for sure. The The good thing that came out of this, but the unfortunate thing about this is this, this is what it took for me to fully surrender my life. You know, yes, I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I wasn't fully ready to give him control until this happened. So, so this happens, and finally, it, I, I surrendered. And once I had that full surrender, even from thousands of miles away, just through talking on the phone, my wife noticed there was a change in me. So when we started talking about future moves, she started trusting me more, started supporting the decisions. It wasn't really a discussion. It was just like, that's what you want to do? All right, well, I'm, I'm behind you. And that's the change when you fully surrender, you know, when you have God in your marriage, when you have a godly wife. So I get home, you know, from Afghanistan in March of 2012. And after that, I went to Fort Riley for a few years. Guys, if you're listening to this and you're in the military, do not request Fort Riley. Do not go to Fort Riley. You know, so I was, I was there until about 2015, and that's when I got out of the, uh, February 2015, and that's when I got out of the Army. We moved back to New York for a little bit, and then we came back to Oklahoma where, we am now, where I am now. And let me tell you guys something, you know, it, it's not that with me putting God first and putting him front and center of marriage. It's, it, everything has not been easy. There's been struggles. There's been hard times. I've messed up, you know, from time to time. And I still struggle, you know, with the fact that God's called me into the ministry. But you know what? Everything's in is God's timing because, you know, I'm just going to say here in the fall of 2020, I'm going to be starting uh, Bible college. So there we go with that, you know. And, and that's that's where I come from. And that's what it took for me to get, though, to the point of surrender and and following God's will and accepting him as my savior 
you know, it, there's just a couple more things I want to want to say about this, you know. There's a lot of people that look at my sin and they look at the things that I did, you know. And even I'll look at him and, you know, in the way on me. And you probably have heard the phrase, once a cheater, always a cheater. I don't think there's anybody out there that's never heard that. But let me tell you this. The moment you accept Christ in your life, your sin no longer defines you. What you've done in your past no longer defines you. It's not who you are. You are a child of God. 2 Corinthians 5.18. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and all things are new. Satan cannot, people cannot hold your sin against you. They will try, but thanks to the glory of God, they will fail because you are a new creation. No, it does not absolve you from anything that you did. You're going to probably still have to deal with consequences here on earth. You know, if you did something stupid and you committed a crime, just because you're a Christian, it's not going to make the justice system forgive you. You're going to have to do your time in prison. Just because you did something stupid, you know, and your wife may have filed for divorce, becoming a Christian, no, it's not going to suddenly stop that divorce proceeding. Yes, God can work miracles. He can save that marriage, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So I don't want you to get your hopes up and say, oh, all I got to do is start talking to God and my marriage is going to be saved. That's not how it works. But I tell you what, you accept Jesus Christ in your heart, you'll bring a peace about the situation that cannot be found anywhere else. So, you know, I'm not going to do a sinner's prayer here. You know, I probably really wouldn't know how to do one. But let me, you know, tell this to you. If you aren't saved and you want to be, or if you're backslidden and you're looking to rededicate your life, it doesn't take a special prayer. It doesn't take the so-called sinner's prayer. It takes you just talking with God, saying, Jesus, forgive me and come into my life. That's all it takes. It is just a simple one sentence, you know, just saying it meaningfully and with all of your heart and actually meaning it. So if you're struggling and you can't decide to make that decision, but you want to, Go ahead and contact us, contact us here at Courageous Warrior Ministries. Find a local pastor to talk to. Find a local strong Christian to talk to. Guys, there is nothing more that would excite us more if you're not a Christian or if you're backslidden than to have you join us as fellow believers. You know, and, and that's all I've really got to say. So I just really, really just want to say, you know, thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for listening. You know, I, I pray that you'll continue to tune in and... Like I said, if you if you need to talk to somebody, just reach out and we'll get back to you. Thank you. <laughs>